This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome back to our show for her monthly time with us, State Senator Joe Comerford, the senator from the Hampshire-Franklin-Worcester District. Senator Comerford, we really appreciate your time with us every month. And I'd like to focus a bit this morning on something other than the happenings on Beacon Hill. A lot of us look to you not only for political guidance, but political guidance that has a moral and ethical component as well. And so there are three topics I want to address or have you address this morning. One is the White House Conference on Hunger that I know you attended, and Monty was there as well, of course. I also want to ask you about question four, which I think has a moral and ethical component, and question one, because I think that many voters are just beginning to focus on what will be on the ballot that Tuesday in November. Let's start with the White House Conference on Hunger. Tell us what your impression was and what your hopes are coming out of that conference. Thanks, Bill, and thanks for having me and for all you do. Uh, I was really honored uh, to head to Washington along with good folks like Monty and uh, Representative Mindy Dom and a, a good group of folks from um, Western Massachusetts, Kirsten Levitt from Stone Soup, and then our House and Senate colleagues. You know, it was a really big deal. And here I'm quoting Jim McGovern, who said this uh, on the main stage. It's a big deal. The president said out loud and his administration got behind ending hunger as we know it uh, by 2030, which is like tomorrow, meaning, you know, we have six years, essentially, once we get going uh, to put in the programs and get the funding together, um, you know, thinking of 2023 as a big on-ramp for that. Uh, but six years to drive down hunger, to work ourselves out of a job, essentially, by putting in the right supports, the right budget allocations, the right programs. Um, and I really thought it was so powerful to see where the conversation around hunger and food insecurity had come 50 years after the last White House conference. People weren't talking only about getting calories into people, although that's important, they were talking about the nutritional value of food. They were connecting it to not only ending hunger and food insecurity, but also really tackling diet-related diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, which are, of course are disproportionately prevalent in low-income communities and communities of color. So there was a racial justice edge to it, which I thought was really important. I also thought it was so important that uh, folks like Javier Becerra, who's the Health and Human Services uh, Secretary for President Biden, you know, quoted people like Frederick Douglass, who said it's easier to build up strong children than repair broken men, meaning we have to start early with good nutrition. And then they also connected it to the outdoors, meaning that it's not enough just to get nutritional food in. People have to exercise. They have to breathe clean air. They have to be where it's safe to play outside. And that's, these are the part of the social determinants of health, which that phrase, the social determinants of health, was said again and again and again, meaning ending hunger means good housing. It means education. It means good jobs. It means public transportation. It means a clean environment. Um, so it was sweeping, audacious, inspiring, a little tiring at mm. the thought of, you know, getting the work together that we have to do. Um, and there's work for everybody. So it's a federal mandate, uh, and I hope the federal government brings it, especially with regard to money. Uh, but there's work for all of us 
at every level of government to implement this. To follow up on the quote uh, from Frederick Douglass, one of the aspects of this White House conference that struck me was the emphasis on nutrition. And Mm -hmm. you talk about funding and people say, oh, well, where could the money come from? To which it seems to me the answer is and was given at the conference, which is a third of Medicare funding goes to treat diseases that are preventable and would be prevented if we just ate better food and exercised a little. That's hundreds of billions of dollars that's available just if we eat better. And I'm wondering what your uh, response is to that uh, part of the conference. Well, sure. You know, that's the upstream. The, the conference was looking for us to head way upstream to prevent illness, diet-related illness. And when we do in this country, we will save tens of billions of dollars in health care costs, treating preventable illness, uh, illness that could have otherwise, or disease that could otherwise um, be eradicated with good food at the jump. You know, when we have infants or in utero, we can start someone on a healthier path and then not treat them for high blood pressure or heart disease or obesity or diabetes, which are very complex in later life and cause a whole manner of issues for people that are not only morally and ethically concerning because we could have helped them earlier, but also really expensive uh, for our healthcare system. So you're right. You know, we infuse, we're going to take the money over this period of time and bring it upstream. And it's going to cost a little bit more in the beginning because we're going to still have to treat these good folks who have not had access as they should to the kind of nutritional food and exercise and um, kind of life changing opportunity uh, because perhaps their zip code or perhaps their race and ethnicity. Um, so we're going to have to do both for a while. And then hopefully we will end as a nation healthier. Uh, President Biden said this should be a place where uh, we are known for raising uh, healthy children. It should be the best place in the world. Right now we're not that place, but we could be. Senator Comfort, let me turn to your conference colleague, Mr. Belmonte. Yes. Monty, you have a thought to share? Yeah, there was powerful testimony from the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, where he was talking about how he found out that he was diabetic, he woke up blind, and they didn't know what to do with him, or and he didn't know how he was going to cure himself. Was he going to go on insulin like his mother, who was also diabetic, had been on for years and years? He switched to a plant-based diet and essentially used food as medicine, which was a major tenet of this conference, to get himself healthy. He then went to his mother, who had been on insulin for years and years and years and years, and convinced her to go on a plant-based diet, and now she's off insulin. And so when you think but, of Monty, say how long it took her to go off insulin. I was well, I can't remember the exact amount of time, but she'd been on insulin for I think decades, and I, it was within a couple months, if I remember. Yeah, it was yeah, in a shockingly short amount of time. Right. This woman who had relied on insulin, uh, which has all kinds of other issues for folks, right, um, was off insulin because she had access to the best diet to help her treat her diabetes. I also thought that Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, had a great line saying, we're going to put the F back in the FDA, where we're always thinking about the drugs, the insulin, how much drugs cost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How much cheaper is it to grow kale than it is to have insulin produced and delivered for people with diabetes? 
And I think that's an excellent way to look at this, to think about the food aspect of it. I agree. Senator Comerford, if we might, I'd like to look at another moral question that is in front of voters, and that is question four on the ballot mm -hmm. this November. I know how hard you worked on the underlying legislation. I'm wondering if you would share with our listeners and your voters and so many others in this area who rely on you for political and moral and ethical leadership, uh, what is happening, what is question four, and why it matters. So thanks, Bill. Um, whenever I say question four, I say yes on four. That's what we have to always say, yes on four. Um, so uh, question four is uh, asks the voters to decide whether or not to keep, essentially keep, the Work and Family Mobility Act. The Work and Family Mobility Act, folks may remember, was passed by the legislature, uh, and then we passed it again when the governor, uh, through very misguided action, vetoed it. Um, so this is roundly endorsed by legislators in the Massachusetts House and the Senate. Um, and so it, but however, it's gone to a ballot and the ballot is asking whether or not we should keep this bill or not. So the answer um, is yes on four. Tell us what the Work and Family Mobility Act is for those who are not clear. So the Work and Family Mobility Act is actually quite, quite simple. Um, it asks uh, it, it offers people an opportunity, those people who do not have immigration status, are without documents, um, an opportunity to apply for and receive a license, a driver's license, regardless of federal immigration status. And so a, a, a vote on yes on four says we're going to keep the Work and Family Mobility Act legislation. Um, and there's a lot of misinformation around this bill. The, the uh, Let me ask you this, because when you talk about misinformation, one of the aspects of this I find so interesting is that law enforcement is almost unanimously behind it. Sheriffs and district attorneys are saying, yes, yes on four, because we want everyone on the roads to be insured. We want everyone on the roads to be licensed. We want everyone on the roads to have a the ability to drive uh, carefully and safely. This is a public safety matter. Yes on four. Exactly right. And the tagline is for safer roads. So we're going to vote yes on four for safer roads. And you are quite right that police chiefs, sheriffs, district attorneys, these folks want yes on four, which would allow people without federal immigration status simply to apply for, get the training around, take a test for a driver's license, and then be allowed to drive with driver's insurance, car insurance. Um, and so it's a very simple proposition. You started, Bill, by saying it was a moral and ethical issue. Um, and so I just want to say that while I'm behind the Yes on 4 for Safer Roads campaign, we all, I think, in this region can also see Yes on 4 as a matter of public health, a matter of immigrant rights, a matter of racial justice, a matter of economic development, because not only people uh, in the law enforcement want yes on four, um, but in fact, public health officials across the state want it. Uh, economic development, chambers, farmers, small businesses want it. Um, and of course, folks who are concerned with racial justice, social justice, immigrant rights want it. It's an opportunity for folks without federal immigration status to be able to drive safely, but also to 
take their kids to school, to go to work, to get health care, especially in Western Massachusetts, where we do not have access to sweeping, um, reliable, comprehensive public transit. This is really the only answer for us. Yes. And what I'm struck by is that this actually is on the ballot, giving the overwhelming endorsement of this by people across the political spectrum for a variety of reasons. But somehow we have to come down to vote against to vote against, uh, I think, what is a uh, proposal. Well, we have to say yes to maintaining the bill. And that's what's a little confusing. But it's yes to maintain the bill. It's yes on four for safety. It's yes on four for, uh, I think, uh, decency, morality, and ethics, as well as public safety, which I think is extraordinary. I, I like. Exactly. We, Can I just say one thing? Sure. Though? The other side is quite well financed, right? So the only way we're going to win is by people power. So numbers of us uh, are taking canvases, um, and we're going to lead canvases. So if folks Google yes on four, they're going to get to a website that will allow them to sign up. It's going to be people power only that helps this prevail. Uh, and we don't have a lot of time because early voting and mail-in voting, these things start very soon. So we have to build the public awareness and will. Um, and the other thing is that it wasn't in the voter guide because the folks who were trying to um, skewer this just came in right under the wire after the voter guide went out. So this is quite high stakes. And I know you want to pivot now to yes on one. So well, I, want to, I also want to say this, that uh, question four, because of that lateness of the question, uh, is on the reverse side of the ballot. You have to turn it over to vote yes on four. So please, 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 when you see your ballot, when you're in the voting booth, turn over the ballot so you can vote yes on four. We just do have a minute left. Question yes. one, there's an ethical and moral issue uh, or component to this question as well. Could you give us your perspective, Senator? Sure, I'll be super quick. Um, yes on one would do a simple thing. It's called the Fair Share Amendment. Yes on one. This had to go through um, many hoops in the legislature. We don't have time to talk about them now. And it is now on the ballot. Voting yes on one says that folks earning a million dollars after that first million pay an extra 4% of their earnings uh, on uh, every dollar after $1 million. And this money is dedicated to infrastructure, that's transportation infrastructure, roads, bridges, buses, trains, and it's also dedicated to public education. This is a very necessary bill. The legislature also has endorsed this. We've studied it. We've looked at it. We don't have enough money to do the kinds of transformational work that we need to do. And remember, infrastructure work is also climate work. So this helps us tackle the climate crisis by really strengthening access to public transportation. So I know we have to go, but yes on one, yes on four. And if folks need any uh, help getting connected, they can email me at joe.comerford at masenate.gov. Um, I don't have an opponent bill. Uh, in this coming election. So I'm throwing my shoulder behind these two wheels and a couple of other campaigns. It is critical that we pass yes on one, yes on four. State Senator Joe Comerford, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you so much. Thank you for your representation. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This is uh, from Rioja, and this is the Tierra. That means Earth. Thank, Thank you. you. I knew my language acquisition would come in handy. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. When you compare Spanish wines, Rioja especially, which is kind of like the Bordeaux of Spain, 90% of the time, stuff that you can get for $12, $15, $20 for Rioja is going to rival things that you're going to get for $30, $35 for Bordeaux. The Tierra is still under 20 at $18.99. I mean, give me a break. I know. Yeah. Nose a little dustier on this one. Yeah. And fruit. Almost like a caramel, actually. It's like cherry cola. Oh, yeah, and this is a, is a Crianza. It is a Crianza. Which is a newer, like a fresher Rioja, right? That's true. Not yeah. quite Hoven. Crianza, it, it doesn't involve nearly as much of the barrel aging as a Reserva or Grand Reserva. I love this. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, -on -one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Co-ops build economic power. A co-op is a trusted and proven way to strengthen the local economy. There are no out-of-town owners. The members own it or the workers own it. October is co-op month. Check out our local co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, and farmer co-ops. Our Family Farms Milk. Small, local, family-run dairy farms that care about the health of their cows, your kids, and our community. Working together to bring you super fresh, 100% local milk. Reach for Our Family Farms Milk. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. And with us this Monday, we have the mayor of Northampton, Gina Louise Shera. And with her and us today, we have Abby Stone, who is the COVID-19 Economic Recovery Grants Administrator for the city. Thank you both for being here with us today. Really appreciate it. Let me start with you, if I might, Abby Stone the Economic Recovery Grants Administrator for COVID-19. We have a lot of information to share with our listeners and really important dates coming up. We really want people to pay attention. So, Abby, tell us what's happening and why it matters. Please. Sure. Um, good morning. Uh, so today um, I'm here to talk a little bit about the Mayor's ARPA Community Recovery Projects Program. Um, she has allocated $4 million of um, Northampton's ARPA funds for this program. 
and this is aimed to benefit our community in recovering from the negative economic and negative health impacts of COVID. ARPA, the American Recovery Plan Act, this is the COVID-19 Recovery Act, federal dollars that have come to the city. About how much are we talking about? In total, um, it's $21.7 million. So $4 million is allocated to this program, which is about 18%. Um, okay, $4 million for this program. What program? The Community Recovery Projects Program. Okay. Um, so like I said, this is for projects um, in the community that are aimed to help the community and help everybody recover from the impacts of COVID. Um, and the application is currently live, and it will be due uh, by October 14th at 5 p.m. So we really want to encourage people to take a look and apply for any projects they may have in mind. Can you give us a sense of what kinds of projects? We're talking about $4 million that the city can spend on new projects to help recovery from the pandemic. That sounds fabulous. And we can suggest, we can make proposals. T tell us a bit more about that process and how it's decided. Yeah, um, it's a fairly open process. Um, and if you want more information, I would suggest visiting the web page for it, northamptonma.gov slash ARPA. Um, and so the, the eligibility criteria really is a program that is designed to help the community. Um, and there are three sort of goals, um, supporting recovery, reconnecting community, or building resilience. So if you think you have a project in mind that would achieve one of these three goals, please take a look at the program and see if it would if it would fit. How far along does the planning have to be? In other words, I say I have an idea. Here's how I'd like to address uh, any number of any one of a number of issues that are in front of this city and municipalities across the state. How far along does my planning have to be? Do I need a budget? Do I need a director of the project? What, what do I need to make this application at least possible? Yeah, yeah, the program should be fairly concrete. There is a budget requirement in the application, um, a program proposal outlining some of the goals, what, what the program aims to achieve. Um, yeah. And are there preferences in the criteria that are indicated in terms of what kind of programs we're looking for and whether they have to be run by nonprofits or whether they can be for for-profit company. Can you tell us more about that? So the um, eligibility criteria is small businesses, um, and there's criteria on the website for, small, for what constitutes a small business under this program. Nonprofit organizations are also eligible to apply, but individuals, if if they have the capacity and if they have a really good program, I, uh, project idea, are encouraged to apply um, and get this project, get their project started. And is, are there definitions on the website that you are using that the mayor is using to determine uh, what projects will be funded? And in that regard, it's really have a second question that's related, which is what kind of or what size grant, how much money are we talking about? I mean, you're talking $4 million. Are we talking about grants for 100000 500000 a million? What, what are we look, talking about? That's a great question. And um, I'll let Abby explain it a little bit more. Good morning, everybody. Um, but we, we've tried to make the application process as, as um, simple and user-friendly as possible. And so actually one of the things that – and we should say that um, this, is part, this is work that comes out of a commission that we put together – of people who are experts sort of in these different areas that we know, having done um, a survey last fall about 
where you know what the, the impacts that people felt from the pandemic and where they really feel like ARPA funds should be directed. So we pulled together people who are representative of different fields. So housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, of the arts, small businesses, a whole bunch of different areas. And we've put together a commission and they with Abby have created this process and put together this RFP. And one of the things that they did- RFP, to, request for proposal. A request for proposal, thank you. Um, one of the things that they did to sort of make this more user-friendly or more open to people maybe smaller projects is they created two different applications. One is a small project application for um, projects that were asking for under 10,000 or under um, in funds. Oh, and so then, there could be many projects that come out of this. Yes. <clears throat> and then there's another application for projects that are over $10,000, the request. So um, so we want people to just be creative and think about, you know, as Abby said, the goals, supporting recovery, reconnecting community, building resilience, and what they feel they could bring to our community to, to help us reach those goals. Are there any examples from, excuse me, other municipalities uh, that have already been through this process or is everyone on the same schedule? Um, <coughs> some people have, are, have done some things sooner than we did, but um, not actually, one thing I'm really proud of is that not many communities have designated this, uh, this sort of significant a pot, so 18% of their ARPA funds for community recovery. A lot of it is more infrastructure, which is absolutely desperately needed and important use for ARPA funds. But um, we really thought that it was important to prioritize community recovery. And so that's why we've we've put aside this fairly significant Mayor, amount. are the other funds already allocated or is that still up in the air? There, some of them are still up in the air. Some of them have been allocated. Um, but this was like a, a very significant section that we wanted to set aside and then create this process for the community. Is there any information available before the deadline about how many grants have been applied for or any anything in the nature of them? I assume it will, they'll all be transparent after the deadline, but how about at this point? Um, Abby, how many, do you know roughly how many? They're starting to come in, but, you know, people, some wait of till us, the deadline. Uh, wait till the end of, towards a deadline to apply for things. So we anticipate a lot later on. Can you give an, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Can you give an example of what one of them is without maybe divulging too much? Because it's kind of hard for me to concretely wrap my mind around what it would look like, either a real or imagined like perfect scenario that would receive money like this. Um, I'm, I'm not going to give a specific project that has been applied, but some examples that were discussed. Ah, sophisticated media person. Um, Aha. <laughs> <laughs> some examples that were discussed, you know, um, this could be uh, measures to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. So that could be improving perhaps ventilation or outdoor spaces, outdoor dining, things like that. Um, but it could also be recovery, you know, making us more resilient in terms of um, how to transition to post-COVID business models and things like that. And things that, <clears throat> that have been affected adversely by COVID? Right. It has to be connected to a either a negative health impact, so that would be spread of COVID, or a negative economic impact, which I'm sure um, there's many examples of that. And it can be for an existing business or for a new business or a new project or an expansion of, of an already existing endeavor, any of those? Right. As the mayor said, we want people to be creative. We have a very commu creative community, and there are a lot of um, people who who could make use of these funds in, in some fabulous ways. So one thing that's key is these are one-time funds. So that will be taken into into as an important factor, right? So how can you use these funds, this one-time infusion, to build something or create something, but um, that will be able to sustain, right? You don't want to 
put money towards something that then would need additional funds that we wouldn't be able to provide. But um, we hope to kickstart some stuff. And that is one of the criteria, an, an important criteria for determining whether or not a grant, I assume they'll be competitive here, a grant will be awarded? It really depends on the project, right? So, um, you know, I think the, the commission will do a great job of looking through all the applications and, and trying to weigh all these different factors and, and, and fund things that are sustainable and really um, meet the goals and help the community as broadly as possible. And these commissioners, these were your appointments? Yes. This is this is a commission that was uh, created for this purpose. And tell and do they vote on each application? How does that work, uh, Abby? You want to tell us? So there is a um, scoring rubric available on, online, so people can look at what specifically the commission will be looking at when. Oh, they so review. if I made an application, I can actually put my application up against how it will be scored in order to see if the odds are that it will be funded? Yes, we wanted to give people an idea of, of, of what the commission would be looking at. Um, and so they'll be using that largely in their in their review. And I hesitate to ask this question, but on the off chance that the $4 million is not all spoken to with these grants, what happens to the remaining money? It'll get folded into the rest of our ARPA funding, and we will find an excellent use for it um, for the city. But I'm uh, I'm hopeful we're going to get a lot of great applications, and I really encourage everybody to just think broadly and creatively about um, what they want to see in our community and how they can how we can help move from this really hard period into something uh, even brighter and better. And as you both have pointed out, the money is available. The project money is available for nonprofits, for profits, small businesses, individuals. You have an idea you can do something great for the city of Northampton. Abby, let me turn back to you for the uh, conclusion of this segment. Tell us how we apply. Where do we go? What do we do? Yes, great question. So please visit northamptonma.gov slash ARPA. It's, um, you can find it on the city's webpage. Um, and please look there for all the information. The RFP is there. Both applications, the small project and the large project applications are linked there as well as the scoring guidelines. Um, and if you have any additional questions that you can't find on the website, feel free to email um, the mayor's office, mayor at northamptonma.gov. And can I just give a quick, I wanna give a great, a huge thank you to the commission and especially to Abby. Um, they've all done amazing work. Another thing that's on the website is an FAQ. So anyone who's asked a question through this process, Abby has very diligently and comprehensively Put that question up there with an answer. So a lot of questions that people have are already there. And um, so check out that webpage. She's done a great job. We have been speaking with Abby Stone, who is the COVID-19 Economic Recovery Grants Administrator for the City of Northampton and the Mayor of Northampton, Gina Louise Shera. Thank you both so very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Gubernatorial candidate Maura Healy will be in Western Mass today to visit Latinx communities and lay out plans for economic growth through education, entrepreneurship, and job training. Healy will be joined by candidate for Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. Stops planned include Springfield, Holyoke, and Chicopee. More than 50 people showed up to a rally on Sunday in Northampton to show support for the local immigrant community. Securing safety at the Connecticut River Greenway State Park on Damon Road was led by Dina Friedman, 
a member of Jewish activists for immigration justice of Western Mass. The Daily Hampshire Gazette reports the hour-long event featured speakers who urged a kinder approach. Friedman tells the newspaper anti-immigrant sentiment exists now as it did during the Holocaust. Valley Steel Stamp in Greenfield and Worthington Assembly in South Deerfield will now be able to invest in new equipment. Both manufacturers will receive $250,000 grants from the Baker Polito administration. The companies will use the grants to invest in machines and tools that will expand their business, while also offering high-paying jobs to residents in the region. Worthington Assembly was also presented with the State Manufacturing Leadership Award on Friday by Senator Joe Comerford and Rep. Natalie Blay. There is a new permanent exhibit at the Holyoke Heritage State Park Visitor Center. The focus of the exhibit is a six-by-two-foot scale model of Mountain Park back in 1980. People will be able to reminisce about the rides and features of the park as it was back in its heyday. For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be breezy, highs 58 to 62. Tonight, mostly cloudy and cold, overnight lows 34 to 38. And the outlook for Tuesday, mostly cloudy, highs in the lower 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Más de 100.000 usuarios en Puerto Rico todavía esperan que se restablezca la energía eléctrica dos semanas después de que el huracán Fiona arrojara cantidades históricas de lluvia y dejara sin electricidad a toda la isla. Fiona tocó tierra en el suroeste de Puerto Rico el 18 de septiembre como una tormenta de categoría 1. La mayoría de los cortes restantes se encuentran en los lados oeste y sur de la isla, según Luma Energy, la compañía que opera la infraestructura eléctrica de la isla. La tormenta dejó caer más de 30 pulgadas de lluvia en algunas áreas, provocando inundaciones y deslizamientos de tierra que dañaron caminos y puentes hacia las montañas de Puerto Rico. Al menos 13 personas han muerto en relación con la tormenta, según el Departamento de Salud de Puerto Rico. Otras 12 muertes están bajo investigación. La tormenta cortó el suministro eléctrico a todos los casi 1.5 millones de clientes de electricidad de la isla. Dos semanas después, el 91% de los clientes han recuperado la energía, informó Luma el domingo. La energía eléctrica ha vuelto a la gran mayoría de los hogares de los municipios del norte y noreste de Puerto Rico, incluida el área metro alrededor de San Juan. Pero casi un tercio de los clientes de la región occidental de la isla seguían sin electricidad junto con alrededor del 17% de los clientes de los municipios de la costa sur. La compañía había estimado previamente que la energía se restablecería al 90% de los clientes en esas regiones para el jueves. En una carta enviada la semana pasada a Luma, algunos miembros del Congreso de los Estados Unidos expresaron su preocupación sobre por qué la empresa no había preparado adecuadamente la infraestructura energética de la isla para soportar un huracán como Fiona. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This evening at 7 o'clock at Smith College at the Weinstein Auditorium, that's in Wright Hall, right next to the library, the Smith College Program for the Study of Women and Gender and Western Massachusetts Code Pink and Demilitarized Western Mass present Medea Benjamin, who is the co-founder of Code Pink and who has just had published the book that she is the co-author of titled War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. 
We are so very pleased to have back with us on the show today Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. Again, she will be having a book reading signing Q&A tonight, this evening, 7 o'clock at Smith College in Weinstein Auditorium. Again, that's in Wright Hall, right next to the library. Medea Benjamin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. I'd like to ask you about the title of your book. Well, actually, the co-title, War in Ukraine. I understand that topic. The co the the sub, the sub the subtitle is making sense of a senseless conflict and to me i think there are all sorts of arrows and pointers and historic markers that show why this conflict in some ways makes total sense is almost predictable in some ways and you title you, your subtitle is making sense which i appreciate of a senseless conflict help us understand the subtitle if you would please Sure. Well, first, Bill, thanks for having me on, and I look forward to being in your neck of the woods, except for the cold. Um, And in terms of the book title, it's precisely, as you say, because it was so predictable that it could have been stopped at so many different occasions. It could have been stopped, um, let's say, in 2008 when NATO met and George Bush pushed for a declaration that Ukraine and Georgia would be part of NATO. Uh, it could have been stopped in 2014 if the uh, U.S. had not gotten involved in the internal affairs of Ukraine. Um, it could have been stopped as uh, uh, close to the Russian invasion as December when the Russians put forward a a proposal for discussion. Uh, And of of course, it should have been stopped when the Minsk Accords were agreed to. And uh, that lays out the uh, outlines for what should be a peace agreement now with more elements to it, of course, since the U.S., since the Russian invasion. But the point is to say that there was no need for this war because there were so many ways to settle this earlier and um, uh, with so many expert um, uh, writers and politicians and government officials in the U.S. pointing along the years to saying, uh, this is a red line, this is a red line, let's not do this. Uh, If anybody had listened to them along the way, we wouldn't be in this war. Well, let me, I know know your book focuses on any number of, uh, off ramps that the United States and Western Europe, Western European nations may have had with regard to the war in Ukraine. I would like you to go back to the question of uh, Putin and Russia and off ramps that Russia had in this conflict, and I would appreciate your uh, analysis regarding Russia's annexation of Crimea and whether that was a point at which some action should have been taken that wasn't, or whether you should you, you think that the United States did the right thing by, well, not doing much? Well, the uh, case of Crimea is a very difficult one because Crimea was part of Russia for so long. The majority of people in Crimea are Russian-speaking. There's a lot of identification with Russia uh, in Crimea the Russia takeover of Crimea was done without any kind of violence. Um, and so I think it's something that Ukraine uh, obviously was living with and uh, could have lived with. And in fact, when there have been 
discussions about moving forward, uh, usually it's in the context of, well, we won't deal with Ukraine uh, with Crimea for a while. And that was until recently. Now, uh, Zelensky has changed his tune and said, we want to take back everything, including Crimea. Uh, but um, the earlier position of Zelensky was, we can let that go for another decade. Um, so basically, there wasn't really a tremendous problem when it came to Crimea. As you know, the fighting was happening in Donbass. That's where uh, the thousands of people were being killed, uh, and that's why the Minsk agreement was so important and um, should have been adhered to by Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. was not helpful at all in, in pushing for that agreement to be um, complied with. Uh, so I think it's, it's Donbass that in the, in the past has been uh, the real stickler, not Crimea. I think that uh, Volinsky's saying... We want Crimea back as part of Ukraine, which it was until Russia uh, annexed it uh, some years ago now, is a good negotiating position. Whether or not he means it, it's a good place for Ukraine to be in terms of saying to Russia, if we're going to sit down and have a peace negotiation, that's where we start. I'm not sure it means that he's serious about having an all-out war to try to take back Crimea. What's your thought about that? I totally agree. I mean, you want to stake out your positions uh, with the, what you would most want, which is to get rid of Russia from all areas of Crimea. Uh, and then in the negotiations, you uh, make compromises. And certainly, uh, I feel like that's going to be what the end of this is, unless we go to nuclear war, and then uh, it could be the end of the human species. Um, but I don't think it's realistic to think that Ukraine would ever be able to take back all of uh, the territories that are under Russian control. And the best that they could probably really wish for is to go back to uh, right before the Russian invasion. Um, but as you seem to be implying, I mean, both sides are staking out um, claims that are more and more uh, radical, more and more intransigent. And that is why it's so worrisome. And uh, that's why I think it's so important to be on this book tour, to be talking to people about it, because, uh, Bill, at this point, it's not just educating people. It's what are we going to do? And that's what really concerns me when I see what's happening in the White House and Congress, uh, the um, marching in line with this uh, Biden administration uh, position, which is now to weaken Russia, uh, I feel is so incredibly dangerous, and I'm very upset that there's not the kind of uh, anti-war movement that we need to have right now, and our allies in, in Congress are not helping at all. We are speaking with Medea Benjamin. She is the co-founder of Code Pink, and her new book is War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. She will be at Smith College at Weinstein Auditorium in Wright Hall this evening at 7 o'clock for a book reading, a Q&A, and a, I think, really important discussion about the war. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk with Medea Benjamin right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime. 
anywhere. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Join Mark Patrick Seminars and lose the weight or stop smoking guaranteed for only $49.99. That's right, seminars are tonight at Hotel Northampton. The weight loss seminar is at 5.30 and the stop smoking seminar is at 8 p.m. Go to markpatrickseminars.com to learn more. There are farm fresh eggs just around the corner and beef across town. Local food is all around. It's a connection to your community, to the land and the people. There's a handy guide to the farm fresh food all around you, the local hero guide on the CISA website. You never know how close you are to something good for dinner tonight, something harvested just this morning. CISA's local hero guide, your guide to farm fresh food, on the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, energy co-ops, farmer co-ops. Go co-op and build economic power right here in your community. October is co-op month. Low-income families can go solar with Co-op Power and River Valley Co-op. If you're on the R2 reduced electricity rate with Eversource, sign up at the Co-op Power website. Share River Valley Co-op's East Hampton Solar Array. Reduce your electric bill with Co-op Power. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution, if any, will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Frances Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Medea Benjamin who will be at Smith College tonight at the Weinstein Auditorium in Wright Hall at 7 o'clock for a book reading and discussion, book signing. Uh, the book is titled War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. She is the co-author with Nicholas Davies. I would like to know, Medea Benjamin, what you see as the resolution, a potential resolution, a realistic potential resolution of the war in Ukraine other than... Uh, there is a nuclear exchange. Give us some optimism for a sensible, logical, potentially feasible resolution for this conflict. Please. Yeah, I think there has to be um, resolutions on a couple of different levels. One is obviously between Russia and Ukraine itself. Another is between Russia and the U.S. and Russia and NATO. 
um, perhaps the easiest is on the uh, Russia-NATO side, which is to agree that uh, Ukraine would not get membership into NATO, uh, that Ukraine would be a neutral country. Uh, Then Ukraine has to get guarantees from other countries that it would be protected in the case of something like this happening again. Uh, And then in terms of the Donbass region, we already talked about the Minsk agreements. I think uh, going back to that general outline, now the question is, where is the border? Of course, it it will not be where uh, Russia now says it has annexed those four provinces. Um, It's got to go back at least to where it was before the Russian invasion. Uh, And then in terms of Russia and the U.S., there are uh, a lot of things that need to be negotiated, and that includes uh, um, uh, arms reduction treaties that uh, have been abrogated or uh, have uh, been expired or are about to expire. Um, there have to be negotiations, uh, of course, on um, issues about nuclear weapons. Uh, we do have a, a treaty that is the solution at the United Nations, the nuclear ban treaty. Wouldn't it be nice if we could get uh, the uh, nuclear nations to agree to that? Um, in terms of uh, Ukraine and Russia, you know, they are neighbors. They're going to have to learn to live with each other at some point. Um, the uh, Russians, it's going to be very hard after these massacres that have happened, after the uh, hor- horrific uh, abuses that unfortunately come with war. Um, there will have to be some kind of tribunals and some kind of accountability. Uh, and <clears throat> We know from the uh, amnesty reports that while the majority of these abuses have coming from the Russian side, there are also uh, human rights, there are also uh, torture, killing of civilians and things that have happened from the Ukrainian side as well. Um, so the uh, and then the question is, who can lead these kind of negotiations? I think the secretary general of the UN has been excellent through all of this, but unfortunately, he hasn't had the power and the backing of the major countries. Uh, I think the U.S. and the U.K. have done a disservice by um, walking back and and getting Zelensky to walk back on those negotiations. Uh, So that has to change. Uh, There are uh, other countries like Turkey that have been involved in uh, mediation. And when people say, well, Uh, Russia is not going to talk. You can't get Putin to uh, dialogue. Let's look at the fact that there have been negotiations when it came to uh, the issue of the uh, nuclear power plant to get the uh, IAEA in in there. Uh, There have been negotiations when it came to the grain deal to get um, massive amounts of grain flowing out into the world that so desperately needs that. And there have been Um, I think it's now 16 prisoner swaps that have happened. Um, So there there are negotiations happening. Uh, There are people who could, uh, and country leaders who could mediate this. Um, It's a question of really pushing. We don't have the power to push Putin to do uh, this. We, I'm talking about U.S. citizens. Um, But we have the power uh, with our own, we should have the power with our own government. Uh, and that's where I think our responsibility lies. Well, let me ask you this in the half minute we have left. President Vladimir Zelensky uh, is not apt to just acquiesce at this point. And President uh, Vladimir Putin is not apt to say, fine, we'll just go back to the borders and we'll just call the whole thing off. So how do they get the political cover to do this? 
Well, I think if the uh, United States calls for a uh, ceasefire in negotiations, um, that is going to play uh, a major hand in what Zelensky can and can't do. If the U.S. continues to say, okay, here's $10 more billion of weapons, here's another $5 billion, I mean, that just says keep fighting to the last Ukrainian. So that's why I think the U.S. can have a major role to play, why we have to push our political uh, leaders, even those who are very progressive on other issues, to come out and call for a ceasefire in negotiations now. That's, uh, that's our job as U.S. citizens. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, co-author of War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. She will be at Smith College, the Weinstein Auditorium in Wright Hall this evening at 7 o'clock. It is, as Noam Chomsky said, this book, a carefully informed judicious study and invaluable guide to understand Russia's criminal invasion of Ukraine and, most crucially, how we can act to help bring this terrible tragedy to an end. Medea Benjamin, thank you for coming back. Thank you for being in Western Mass. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. One of my friends at the Stone Soup Cafe told me a story that's typical of what happens there. She was working at the community garden at the Greenfield Town Farm. She encountered an older woman there, and it was a rough encounter. She didn't leave happy. Later on that week, she came to the Stone Soup Cafe, and she found herself sitting next to that very same woman, and they developed a relationship. And the young woman goes to help the older woman with her gardening, and the older woman is giving lessons to the younger person on different plants and how to grow various things. My name is Ari Pliskin. I'm the executive director of the Stone Soup Cafe. The Stone Soup Cafe is a weekly community cafe that takes place in the parish hall of the All Souls Church in Greenfield. By operating on a pay-what-you-can basis, it's available to all kinds of people and a lot of people come who are hungry and who need a meal in order to meet their basic food needs and other people come just because they love the environment and they love the atmosphere and to have a good time and be part of something special to learn more Live please visit Stone Soup talk for Northampton in the Valley since 1950 WHMP Northampton WHMQ Greenfield a Northampton Radio Group Station it's